As I mentioned just a few moments ago, this month we are attempting to look at work and what role work has to play in in the way we bear the image of God, how it's part of God's calling on our lives, and how it can be a space where we actually enter into worship with God. And last week we started by taking a stroll through Genesis 1 and 2. And last week we were asking why and how God created work in the beginning. And in those two chapters we found a few things. First of all, we said that God himself created work because he took pleasure in it. That God is a worker. Right? He was at work in the creation story. Second, we said that through that, that work, God can yield beauty and order and life. And he created work as a way for us to be in partnership with him. Right? When he breathed life into us and formed us in his image, work was, was part of the way we image who he is. We're to be his collaborators in filling and in cultivating the world he's placed us in. And finally, we said that last week, we were not only created to be in partnership with God in our work, but we're also set alongside one another to be partners with, with our fellow brothers and sisters in the work we do. And that, that work offers that opportunity for partnership and trust and reliance. So as an example of the dignity and the calling and the value of work, I wanted to start you out, kind of warm you up this morning with a job description. Now this is an actual occupation. Some of you out there may actually work in this particular field. But I want to give you 15 or 20 seconds with the person next to you. See if you can figure out what job is being described here. What is, what is this a, a description of? Go ahead, take 15, 20 seconds. See if you can guess. Tell your guess to the person next to you. Consoler of the lonely, an enlarger of the common life, promoter of mutual acquaintance. It's pretty quiet out there. Any guesses? What's that? Mother? That's a decent guess. That, That would be appropriate on Mother's Day. But this is actually a description of a postal worker. And these phrases all are engraved on the original po- one of the original post offices in the nation's capital, in D.C., what's now become the National Postal Museum. And they might not be the first things that come to your mind when you see your mail carrier, you know, when that truck goes by. But they remind us that even the ordinary task of delivering mail is a truly noble occupation. It's a calling Right? It allows these things to take place, for parted friends to communicate, for, for the lonely to receive consolation, right? to, to actually sort of hold our nation together through the exchange of information. When I read this description, these, these phrases in a book on work this week, though, I couldn't help but compare sort of the, the high calling expressed here with the stories of a few friends and neighbors I know that work in the Postal Service. And they've, they've told me that over the past few years, that job has continued to become more difficult. I hear from them about seven-day work weeks 
in many situations. And continued ex expectations for lots and lots of overtime in the work they do. There is a high degree of turnover among new employees because of these requirements, because of the burnout associated with them. There are budget cuts. There's the, the need to make the post office a, a profitable institution. And then on top of that, there are the piles and piles and piles of Amazon packages that they are now being asked to deliver. And so being a mail carrier is to be an agent of blessing. It's to perform a great service to society. But it's also a job that's getting harder and harder to do for, for any length of time and to have space in your life to do anything else. All right, it feels like something that is really good is also at risk of being spoiled. And I think the same sort of story could be applied to probably any of our places of work. No matter where you do your work, there's the dark side, the, the underbelly to our working lives. We all know work that's frustrating. We know work that is exhausting. We know work that is disappointing at times. Some of you may be stuck in jobs you genuinely dislike. You, you dread going into work Monday to Friday. Some of you may be eager for work but find yourself unemployed or underemployed today. So there's this, this complexity, there's this broken side to work as well. As author Steve Garber, who's written a wonderful series of books on vocation says, in a fallen world, vocation or calling or work has to be a big word. It has to be able to handle the whole of our lives, able to hold together both the most remarkable joy and the most remarkable sorrow. And so work is God's gift to us, but it's a gift that in many cases has been distorted and disrupted. And so somewhere between that, that beautiful conclusion to Genesis 2 last week, where we have Adam and Eve in the garden, they're, they're created in the image of God, they're partnering with God and with each other in Eden. Somewhere between the end of that story and the world in which we now live, something has gone wrong. And what we want to get at this morning is where and how has our work come undone? What happened? And for that, we need to move into Genesis chapter 3. And as we do that, let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we want to be people who step into every moment of our lives, mindful that you have ordained the work we do, the people we do it with. You've called us to be your creatures, your creations who are in step with your spirit and your redemptive power. Lord, as we look into your word today, may we see both the goodness of what you have created, but also our culpability, our brokenness, the hardness of our own hearts. Lord, would we be called back to you in these things? Lord, I pray now as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The start of chapter 3, in that very first place of work, there in the garden, we're introduced to a new character. A new voice slithers his way into the garden. And the serpent is the very first person in all of Scripture that introduces a question. And the first question is this. Did God really say, you must not eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden or you will die? Would God really say, would God really require such a thing? And in verse 2, Eve offers a response and she clarifies what God has actually decreed. She says, we may eat of any of the trees in the garden, just not that one. Just not the one in the middle. Now this may seem like a rather trivial item. But we're told that back in chapter 2, when God created all of these incredible things, he placed his creation before us. He invited us to be his partners in it. He laid down only one single boundary. He said, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think the basic idea there was that Here in this garden, there will be no moral autonomy apart from God. God's vision has created Eden. God's wisdom is what drives Eden. God's power is what must sustain Eden. And so he requests, he requires that Adam and Eve do not transgress that boundary and and step into his place. But the serpent, we're told, is craftier than all the wild animals. And he moves from his question in verse 1, he moves into what sounds now like an accusation in verses 4 and 5. And he calls into question the way God has ordered things. The intention God has in this. And he says, there's, there's no harm in transgressing God's boundary. You will not die, he says. And what's more, if you choose to eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. And you will become like God. You will possess a wisdom and a knowledge all 
your own. We can begin to see where this story is headed. The serpent introduces this temptation in our work, in our worship, in all that we do to make ourselves like God. To take that first step of separation from him. In the work that you do, whether it's in the home, whether it's in an office space, wherever that is, where do you experience the temptation to be like God? Does work ever have the temptation for you to become your domain, your private empire, done according to your wisdom alone? Does work ever become a place that you seek to bolster your sense of self-worth? Is there ever a temptation that your work is an idol? Every job that we could step into carries certain privileges, certain responsibilities. Things given to us in order to do our work well and effectively. But there are also always boundaries to the work we do. Limits to it that guard its goodness. And if we blow past those limits, right? if we begin to see work not as the flourishing of all creation, the, 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 the way we're called to serve all that God has made, if work becomes about feeding our sense of self and self-worth and self-satisfaction then the good work God has given us slowly becomes compromised. And we see how that takes place in verses 6 through 8. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The desire that the the serpent has put before them, the desire to be like God, proves too tempting to resist. And in in a single action, in a single instant, Eve and Adam exchange a working relationship of trust for a quick grab at power here. And it's from this point on that the story of our world and the story of our work comes apart. It unravels. And the scripture tells us that the first consequence which which comes into being is in the way that we now see and perceive ourselves. Adam and Eve's eyes are in fact opened... Just as the serpent said they would be, but not in the way he led them to believe. 
As soon as they take the fruit, they become acutely aware, not of newfound power, but of nakedness, of vulnerability. They see not some glorious godlike autonomy there in the garden. Instead, they begin to feel shame and separation. And we can think back to just a few moments before this took place, right? They were free in the garden. They were secure in who they were. They had an identity that was gifted and given to them by God. But in that exchange, in the taking of that fruit, they now become rebels. And they are looking for a place to hide. Looking for a place where they are no longer seen. Some of you know that I drive a sunshine yellow pickup truck. You've seen it sitting out there in the parking lot. And because of its color, everywhere I go, people see me coming from a long distance away. Right? Everyone knows, hey, there goes the pastor. Hey, I saw you. I, I never see any of you in your cars, but you see me. And that's fun for a while, but it's not as much fun when you're in a hurry driving through town. Right? Then a little anonymity seems better, seems more appealing. But I think driving that truck is it's a kind of spiritual discipline that's kept me from racking up speeding tickets. Because it's an invitation to be seen. And in the life of our work, we see that, that being seen, being transparent is important as well. You could take the stock market as an example. Right? Shareholders will invest in corporations that regularly make disclosures about what's happening behind the scenes, under the hood. Right? Investors want to know about production. They want to know about profits. They also want to know about losses. And when that transparency is, is done away with or avoided, it doesn't take long for bad stuff to take place. That's true in companies, that's true in organizations, that's true in families. Right? Scandals always begin with hiding of some kind. Right? Someone is skimming money off the top. Some corner is being cut for efficiency or increased profit. And pretty, th- pretty soon things, things sort of grow out, the infection spreads... And the net result of of that hiding is that trust is worn away and eroded. Trust becomes broken. And so here in the garden we have Adam and Eve. They were created by God to to do work with him. Created to be stewards and caretakers. They're vested partners in this creation that God has made. But it's really hard to continue in partnership when you are hiding something. Right? It's, it's hard for us to enter into and enjoy the good work God has given us and called us to do when we have divorced it from God's intention and design. Maybe you have run up against this in, in small, maybe in sometimes big ways in the work you do, in the workplaces you, you go into, where you feel this strain, where something you do puts a check in your spirit. You feel hesitation that 
that if this were to be brought out in the open, if, if all were to be able to see the decisions you're making or the way you're making them or how they're being carried about, right there, there would be a desire to, to hide, to pull some of that back. Are there dilemmas that you face in the work that you do? Hard decisions. And are the choices that you're making, are they allowing you to partner freely, to open, openly kind of walk with God in the work you're doing? Or do some of them feel like they, they cause you to take a step back? They, they split that partnership apart. Well, mercifully, God comes looking for us. God comes calling for us, even when we're hiding in the shadows. And we see there in Genesis 3, the the middle part of this chapter, that God goes looking for Adam and Eve, even in the wake of their rebellion. And God finds them and he begins to speak with them. He he pursues reconciliation, face-to-face conversation. But unfortunately, the second half of chapter 3 explains that because of this choice, because of their hiding, because of their desire to be like God, sin will now spoil so much of what was good in that garden. And near the, the top of that list of casualties is the undoing of their work. Look at verses 16 through 19. We'll finish with these this morning. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. What we have here in these first four verses, as God finds them in the garden, is a description of the the sting, the curse of sin itself. And we see in in the entirety of chapter 3, essentially what we have is an undoing of what God created in chapters 1 and 2. What God has declared good has now gone wrong. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw God himself at work. In chapter 3, we see us taking a step away from him in our desire to be like God's ourselves. In chapters 1 and 2, we see God inviting us to participate in work with him. In chapter 3, we see ourselves hiding from God. In chapters 1 and 2, God makes partnership integral to the work we do. Now in chapter 3, we see that partnership disrupted, both between Adam and Eve, 
and also between humanity and all of creation itself. These verses spell out in more detail what that curse, what that sting looks like. For Eve, we're told that the good work of childbearing, the work of of motherhood and even married life, now becomes bittersweet. Right? Pregnancy, which, which is probably the most foundational work of being fruitful and multiplying that God spoke of in chapter 1. Now that work becomes painful. And God goes on to say that so too the relationship between husband and wife, which was meant to be this beautiful partnership of, of serving and helping and complementing one another to do the work God had given God says now that relationship will be fraught with struggle and with misunderstanding. He goes on and then speaks to Adam and he says that the curse of sin will now not only poison his relationship with Eve, but so too it will poison his relationship with the ground itself. The garden is now a place of toil and sweat. Cursed is the ground, God says. Not because he places a curse on it, but because Adam has cursed it. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of your choice. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until one day you returned to the dust from which you have been taken. In short, work has become broken, and work has become hard. Even if you're not a farmer or a gardener, right, you have felt these realities firsthand. You know what it feels like to do work that, that's toil. It's exhausting. You know what it's like to do work and then have that work end in failure. You know the propensity in most of us to work beyond our limits. To work until exhaustion. To make work a source of our identity. We know work that is stressful. We know work that is too often fruitless. And so that that leaves us asking, well here at the end of chapter 3, what about us as the inheritors, as the offspring of Adam and Eve? Is our work good, like chapters 1 and 2, or is it fallen? Is our work beautiful, or is it broken? I think we see that work, most of the time, is is this mixture, is this complication of Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3. And I think that's because Genesis tells us we have essentially pulled apart what God intended to be together. Right? We have taken two things, our worship, all of who we are, and our work, and we have separated them. And in doing so, we have exaggerated the place of work, the burden of work, the strain of work. And we have shrunk, we have withered in our conception of worship. So I think to do good work in a fallen world We have to look at this fragmentation honestly. 
Right? We have to think about and name and know where we have participated in, in this division. And then prayerfully consider, well, well, how can these two worlds be brought back together? And so just like last week, I want to give you a project, some homework. And again, most of this morning, I've, I've given you ideas, principles, truths that we see in these passages. But to do the work of application, you really need to, to go back and think about where these things appear in your workplace, in your everyday life. So let me challenge you, somewhere this week, take 20, 25 minutes, and I want you to ask God to help you to see the hard stuff at work. This probably won't be a particularly fun assignment, but I think it's necessary. And ideally, this is something you could do at your workplace, maybe during a coffee break, maybe before you... Start work in the morning or or at the end of your shift. And maybe actually try to take a walk around the place you work in and ask these couple questions. First of all, where do you see evidence of the fall? Where do you see Genesis 3 in the work you do? What's not the way it should be? Where is their brokenness? Where is their strain? Where is their hiding? Where is there a lack of transparency? Where are relationships broken? Where is there fruitlessness? And as you walk around, as you you spend time, you know, listing those things off. Lord, this is not the way it should be. It doesn't seem like these things are Genesis 1 and 2. It seems like these things are, are under the curse of our sin and our brokenness. And as you list those things off, then take the last five or ten minutes of your time. And maybe you don't have a clear-cut solution, but, but make it your prayer. Lord, how can I bring each of these things, whether they're directly my responsibility or not, how can I bring them back to you in an act of worship? What would it look like to step toward you in these things rather than away from you? What would it look like for me to surrender to your wisdom to your knowledge of what is good, rather than than to desire to do it on my own, to return worship to your work. Let me pray for us as we endeavor to do those things together. Jesus, we see in who you are the great marriage of worship and work. We see your hands as a carpenter. We see your hands of healing We see the wisdom of your teaching, what you call good. Lord, in your new humanity, in all of who you are, Lord, would you show us who we are meant to be. In specific, Lord, in the things we do this time tomorrow, may we be honest with what's not good, what's hard, what's exhausting, what we have not done well and ask for your wisdom, your Holy Spirit's ability to to redeem and reclaim those things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.